Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. You all, I don't know what it is, but you all look a lot older to me today. Um, so, no offense meant by that. Um, I've been talking to kids all weekend, okay? So, it's just adults, finally. Uh, it's a nice change of pace. Um, and so, happy to have you with us. This is the third Sunday of Lent. Uh, so, we're continuing to um, walk through the season of preparation for Easter, where we um, look inside of ourselves and try to find sin and identify it within our hearts so that we can repent of it and kind of do some spiritual house cleaning, right? And get some sin out of the way so that there's more room in our hearts for um, the joy that comes with Easter uh, Sunday, uh, the biggest day of the year for us as Christians. And so we're on our way to Easter, um, but on the way, uh, we participate in a season where we take time to think and we take time to reflect and we take time to take spiritual inventory of our lives. And so um, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we are reading through the book of Amos as a guide uh, through the season of Lent. And so we'll continue to do that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Amos chapter 3. We'll be in Amos chapter 3 this morning. We'll actually go through Amos 3, uh, the chapter, and uh, chapter 4. So not that many verses, so it doesn't sound more than it is. Um, but we'll, we'll get two chapters uh, out of the way today. Um, remember, Amos is an 8th century prophet who is ministering to the people of Israel. At uh, this time, God's people are split into two kingdoms. So you have the northern ten tribes, the Israelites, then you have the southern two tribes, Judah. Um, Amos is from Judah, but he travels up to Samaria, the capital of Israel, and is preaching to them. His message is, as we've seen, judgment. Okay, You have done wrong. God is upset at you, and like a lion coming to devour its prey, God is coming to destroy you and to judge you. Um, and that's been his message pretty consistently so far in the book. It will be throughout the book. Uh, and we'll pick up in chapter 3 with Amos continuing to speak to the Israelites. They have not spoken back yet, at least in the context of the book. Um, eventually we will hear from his opponents, people he's preaching to. <coughs> Um, but we can imagine that they aren't necessarily big fans of this message, right? Um, and so he is going to continue to go on the offensive uh, and try to um, anticipate and counteract any objections that they might have to this idea that God is going to come and destroy them for their sins. And so um, in chapters 3 and 4, what we'll find is there's three sections kind of neatly broken up. And so... Each section, I think, has a lesson for us as Christians going through the season of Lent. So we will um, read a section and talk about it. We'll read the second one, talk about it, read the third one, and talk about it. Um, so uh, for my type A people, you know where we're going this morning and how we're getting there uh, what we'll be doing. So we'll start uh, with Amos chapter 3, verse 1. The first section goes from verse 1 to verse 8. So if you'll read with me. It says this, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people not afraid? 
Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Um, Now, he's here, Amos is here in chapter 3, going right after the heart of what the Israelites might think would be their protection from any sort of judgment from God on account of their sins. And the primary objection that they might have would be simply this. Um, We're God's people. God has picked us to be on his team, not anybody else around here. And so why would he turn on us? He's made all these promises to us. He's um, kept us the good and bad times and long history of our ancestors. And so we're the covenant people. God has chosen us and he's not going to turn on us. And Amos, right out of the gate, attacks this, okay? And says um, what would have been really shocking to the Israelites in verse 2 here. Um, he, he repeats this covenant claim, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Even the Hebrew here is really rare. Um, this harks back to the promise made to Abraham, um, the, the patriarchs. Um, these are old, rare Hebrew words. This phrase, you have I known of all the families of the earth is not found a whole lot in describing the covenant and what happens when God picks his people. And so the Israelites would have been, yes, exactly, that's our point. We're God's people. But he draws the opposite conclusion that they want to draw from that. So the Israelites would draw the conclusion, therefore, he's not going to kill us. Amos says, therefore, I, God, will punish you for all of your iniquities. Amos is suggesting to them, and will suggest to them, that it's because they're God's covenant people, because they have this special relationship to him, that God is that upset about their disobedience and sin. And that it's because of this relationship that judgment is a very real thing that's coming to them unless they repent. He asks these rhetorical questions, you you see them, Um, And they are simply meant to establish the relationship between cause and effect, okay? Um, And so the first few questions, you get the result first, and then you see the cause. Did two people take a journey together unless they've already gotten together and planned on it? No, okay? The result, two people taking a trip, the cause was they sat down and planned it out and agreed to go on this trip. Um, On and on, right? Cause and effect. Something happens and something happens because of it. Uh, And then he switches it, and then the cause comes before the result in verse 8. Is a trumpet blown in a city, and the people not afraid? This is the watchman of the city, the guy who's watching for invading armies, blows the trumpet. Aren't the people in the city going to be fearful and start to kind of do something to prepare themselves for an invading army? Yes, right? You would think that's the cause and the effect, right? Um, and here again, you see the cause come before the result. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The Israelites, the theological understanding they had at the time was um, that cities rose and were destroyed by God's hand. They took this for granted. Um, so another cause and effect question that he asks. And then he says again, the lion, speaking of God, has roared out his judgment. And thus, the Israelites should be afraid, should repent should turn back to him, lest they be destroyed as well. Then he defends himself, and he says, He's spoken to me, and so what can I do but prophesy? 
He spoke the cause, the result is I'm speaking. He's roaring, and the result on your part should be fear and repentance. And yet it's going to be continued sin and continued opposition. Um, this whole idea that the covenant itself might be the ground reason for their punishment would have been very new to the Israelites, um, particularly at this time in history, far removed from when the actual covenant was made. Um, the nations have split off. Uh, and, and he says, because, therefore, uh, of the covenant, I will punish you for your iniquities. Um, in reality, the covenant, when it was set up, always had blessings and curses built in within it, right? If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. Um, the Israelites perhaps uh, weren't familiar, as familiar with that part of the covenant of this period of history, or perhaps conveniently left it out. It's funny how religious people can often leave out um, certain things that they just would rather not hear, and they don't talk about it, they don't read about it that often, those kinds of things. Um, and Amos says, no, that, that punishment clause has always been in there. Um, and it's actually because God has expected more out of you that he's so upset, in particular, that you have sinned. He expects it from all the other nations, right? But from you, my people, that's why there's so much anger. That's why I'm speaking in the voice of a roar of a lion. You were supposed to be my people. The Israelites were chosen by God. They were a special people. But the scriptures are clear throughout. They were never chosen just so that they could claim that God loved them more than anybody else. They were chosen to be a witness to the world. They were chosen to be a light to the world. They were chosen to go be a blessing to the world. To go out and show the rest of the world what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. To receive his grace and to walk in obedience and find life in that obedience. And instead, the Israelites had decided to act like the rest of the world. In fact, maybe in senses worse than some parts of the rest of the world. And so God is um, perhaps more offended that it's his own people who are doing this. He says, you thought the covenant was some magic, like bulletproof shield in front of you. But the covenant is actually what's testifying against you. That's actually the evidence against you. And that's actually what's making me so upset and makes me so disappointed and makes the prospect of judgment a very real uh, and very close danger for you. Now, as we look at this as Christians, um, far removed from this historical context in the season of Lent, walking through the season of Lent, um, the biggest mistake we can do would be to try to interpret this from one nation to another nation, okay? And I listened to a couple sermons in Amos 3 to see what other people were doing with it, and in both of them, they did this, and I'm just cringing as they do this, right? They go, um, God was judging Israel because of their sins, and so now in our context, look at America, and look at our sins. And so God's going to bring judgment on America, um, the problem with this is that America is not the modern-day equivalent of the Old Testament people of God. Okay, um, We have that cultural understanding, um, and it's built deep within us, even if we don't realize it sometimes. Um, if you watch politicians talk during the debates and the campaigns, you'll see they quote verses that are about the church from the New Testament, but they apply them to America. 
We were supposed to be the salt and light of the world. Well, no, God never said that to America. That's not America's job. It's his people's job. And his people exist in America, but they also exist in Russia. And they also exist in Iraq. And maybe Canada. I don't know. <laughs> I'm exercising faith here, but there might be some followers up there. Right? It's not a national thing. It's a transnational thing. It's a global community. Um, the modern-day equivalent of the Israelites are those who follow Christ. We're now included in this group of the chosen people in a special relationship with God. And as we prepare ourselves for Easter, as we walk through the season of Lent, we need to sit down and take serious inventory of how we have been living in light of God's grace to us, in light of His choosing us. Um, because, again, he, he doesn't give us grace. He doesn't forgive us. He doesn't bring us into relationship. Um, only so that we can go do whatever we want and continue to live whatever kind of life we wanted to live. That's something some theologians call cheap grace, right? It's a kind of grace or forgiveness that costs you nothing. It doesn't require any effort on your part. It doesn't require any life change on your part. And throughout the Bible, you'll find this kind of idea condemned over and over and over again. God's people are forgiven and are saved and are put in covenant with God, but it's always for a purpose. Even today, you and I as Christians, we don't exist just to be proud of the fact that we're forgiven. We exist to go and share the gospel with everyone around us, to live on mission. And we, we aren't forgiven just so that we can stay in our sins and just claim that, well, we're forgiven. We've got this magic bulletproof shield around us. We're forgiven so that we might be able to be transformed and live a new life. And it might be progressive, right? It's probably not over the night. I doubt anyone in here is perfect, okay? We've got people in here who have walked the Lord for a long time. Um, but there's a trajectory in the life of a Christian where they're becoming more and more like Christ and um, repenting and removing more and more sin from their life. Um, and during the season, this is, is what we are doing. We're trying to preemptively um, hear God's word. Right? Before he shows up and roars like a lion, we want to maybe take some time to sit down on our own and look through our hearts and look through our actions. And say, Is there any sin here? Have I taken God and his relationship um, for granted? Have I taken his grace for granted? Have I reacted appropriately to what God's done in my life? through Christ and through the Spirit. Um, and then I would wonder, maybe, there might be other magic bulletproof shields we use to try to protect us from the idea that, that God is anything but super, super happy with us. Um, like, I've met people who, it was the sinner's prayer for them, right? Um, so they said the sinner's prayer when they are five years old at a camp, and then they just live a life of a complete, like, pagan. Just sin and debauchery over and over and over and over again, right? And 70 years old, um, they go, no, I'm a Christian. Um, that kind of a identifier doesn't make sense with anything from the scriptures, <coughs> right? There's no, there's no magic loophole here where you get to pray something, and then all of a sudden your actions don't matter anymore. 
God can't be disappointed or upset or bring judgment. Um, God can't um, use the fact that you have received grace as an indictment against you. Because you of all people should have been the one who was transformed and who was acting differently. Um, for some, maybe it's baptism. For some, it's, it's more subtle, right? Like maybe it's even like church attendance. I go to church every Sunday. But yet, that might just be an excuse for us never to have to really deal with some really deeper sins in our life. And to never really progress spiritually. We use it as a kind of shield against actually interacting with God and actually growing and maturing as a Christian. Um, the name of this message, us, message to Israel and, and to us today is that um, we can't take our relationship with God for granted. Um, God has forgiven us as Christians, and he has given us his grace. Um, but that grace is something that should cause transformation in us and should cause us to live um, and live on purpose um, for him. And so as we go through the season of Lent, right, we want to proactively dig out those sins. I don't know about you. I'd much rather do it on my own than have to hear the lion roar, right? Um, so this is Amos' first message. He continues on in the second section, starting in verse 9, all the way to chapter 4, verse 4. Um, we see three proclamations that are given. Okay, The first, proclaim in the strongholds, to the strongholds of Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary, an enemy, shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch or a part of the bed. Um, this first proclamation he calls as witnesses against Israel two foreign enemy nations, Ashdod and Egypt, two pagan nations. Um, this is insulting to the Israelites, right? Um, this is God's way of saying, this is how bad you are. Um, the worst people you can imagine can come and watch you act and be like, man, these are pretty bad people. I feel like if we were a really dysfunctional, unhealthy church, I hear that those exist in the world. Um, thankfully, we've been blessed that we're not that kind of church. But imagine that we were, um, and then imagine that there was a Satanist club across the street, okay? And the Satanist club came and kind of observed us for a month or two, and, and their conclusion after this observation, this sociological study they were doing on us was, wow, these are awful people. We'd be a little offended. We'd be like, well, you're a Satanist, so there's that. But God's saying his, his people are acting so wrongly. They're storing up violence. They're oppressing the needy. They, they've lost all sense of morality. They don't even know how to do what's right. Um, he says, and because of that, this enemy, this unnamed enemy, is going to come and tear them down. Now, he uses the analogy of a shepherd rescuing um, a piece of a, a sheep from the mouth of a lion. Um, this actually was a practice in ancient Israel. And so 
say that a shepherd loans you another shepherd a sheep or a couple sheep um, and it wandered off a sheep do it's not really your fault sheep are pretty stupid and a lion comes and eats it um, your responsibility would be um, either to go and try to grab a piece while the lion's eating it which I don't recommend um, and I don't think they recommended back then even though it's there um, because there's another way to do this or wait till the line's done and then go pick up what was left. And this would be your way of telling your neighbor, your friend, whoever lets you loan the sheep, right? Like, hey, it got eaten by a line. I didn't sell it. I didn't trade it off for something. I'm not hiding it, right? This is all that's left. Um, and he says, that's going to be what happens to Samaria, to Israel. Um, there's going to be just a piece of an ear left or some bones. He says it's a, a corner of a couch and a part of a bed. We'll see uh, Amos is going to get onto the wealthy and get onto the various houses that they have, uh, the various furnishings and possessions they have uh, acquired and accumulated. He says all of those things will be destroyed. This fancy couch you're sitting on, there'll be a piece of cloth. Um, that bed that you enjoy, um, it'll be just cut down to a leg. Um, all that you built your life on will be destroyed. There's a, the second proclamation here. So proclaim to the strongholds and hear and testify again against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. On that day that I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Again, um, he says, when it comes time for punishment, he goes, I'm going to go after your two primary places of security. The first one is the temple that you worship at. So the northern tribes, the ten tribes that made up Israel, didn't have access to Jerusalem and Judah anymore once they were a separate nation. And so they still wanted to maintain their status as covenant people with God, or at least appear that way. And so they built up a temple uh, at Bethel, okay? And from the beginning, it was always a little controversial, right? It was a legitimate temple. Can they really worship here? Um, the people who lived in Judah, in Jerusalem, Amos probably had this uh, perspective as well, definitely most likely saw it as a um, kind of ridiculous copy, right? As kind of this really pseudo-illegitimate temple, um, that was uh, a, a poor substitute for what God had created in Jerusalem um, through Solomon. And they would have seen it as a, a kind of a sinful attempt to recreate something that you're not allowed just to recreate wherever you want. Right? God had established his presence in the temple in Jerusalem, and you can't just go and pretend like you can worship at Bethel. Um, this remains a controversy even into the first century. Jesus in the Gospel of John engages in this controversy. If you'll remember, he meets a Sumerian woman. And she says, why are you going to talk to me? Um, we're separate people. We've got lots of differences. There's hatred between our two groups. And then she brings up the question, um, where should somebody worship? And this is the question. You all tell me, you all being the Jews, that worshiping at Bethel is false worship. It's idolatry. And we tell you that you are not worshiping correctly. And you remember Jesus' famous answer 
Um, the day is coming when you don't worship here or there, but in spirit and in truth. Um, he says, God's coming, he's tearing down that temple. And so any, any mirage you had of relationship with the covenant God will be destroyed. The horns are going to be torn down. The horns would have been the place you put the blood offering. Um, you won't even be able to pretend that you're atoning for your sins in a new way. And the second thing he's coming after are the strongholds. There's these mansions that the wealthy have built up. Um, the royal and wealthy class, um, both then and throughout history, tend to go hand in hand, right? Um, the people in charge politically of nations um, and cities tend to also be the people who are wealthier and in cahoots and in relationships with the wealthy people of towns and or nations. Um, and what we know is, um, Amos tells us, right, they'll be all cut off and we know there's people who have winter houses and summer houses. Um, now, we're used to the idea of a vacation house. The idea, though, that somebody other than like a king would be wealthy enough to have a summer house and a winter house in 750 BC is slightly ridiculous historically. What that suggests is an economy of extreme inequality. Um, this is not an economy like we're used to, um, where there's lots of money to go around and lots of jobs and commerce and industry. Um, they lived in a world where there was not a whole lot to make money off of, where most people weren't competing for jobs. You were a slave. Uh, you were oppressed. You were taken advantage of. But somehow a handful of people were able to accumulate enough wealth to build these big mansions, these big strongholds, and have multiple ones of them. And we know historically, we've, we've dug this up in, in artifacts, archaeological digs, that there are these, this evidence of homes um, from this time period that are remarkably huge for a time in history where there's just not a lot of wealth to go around, unless you're a king biggest and baddest empire in the world. Um, they had these big houses, and they would actually import furniture and furnishings in from all over the world. So there's couches from Africa, and there are statues from Assyria. I mean, this is serious money being paid. Um, there's elaborate ivory carvings and drawings all over the houses. Um, I mean, this is rich, 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 rich person and the security that comes with possessing a lot and being able to buy yourself out of any trouble, right? Money. He says that is going to be attacked. It's going to be torn down just like the temple. God says, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming for the temple and I'm coming for your wealthy big houses. They'll all be torn down. Um, and then the fourth proclamation of the third in this middle section Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now here he starts using fighting language, okay? He is referring to, as we'll see, certain women as cows. I've only been married for two months, but I think that's a bad idea. Um, you know, if you ever want to make a comparison between a woman and something, try to make it nice. Um, unless you want to slap or to, you know, never have a relationship with a woman. Um, Amos, though, says, hear this, you big fat cows. Um, 
You sit on the mountain of Samaria. You oppress the poor. You crush the needy. You say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. This is a uh-oh statement. The Lord often takes oaths or swears. Um, but he rarely does so on himself. And when he does that, it's like a gulp, right? That's bad news. When God says, I swear on my own reputation, this is going to happen. Um, it's irrevocable at this point. Um, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Um, the cow metaphor, while perhaps a little rude, is a fitting one. Bashan is known for its fertile land and its well-fed cattle. And he's comparing the women and not just the women, all of the population, right, to these fat, fat cattle who just sit, right, all day and graze and eat. And they just consume and consume and consume and accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and don't do much of anything for anybody around them. And he says their, their way of living, that lifestyle, is a way of living, a lifestyle that oppresses the poor and that crushes the needy. Um, Amos, like most of the Bible, is written from the perspective of people who are relatively poor. So you will not find a whole lot of good things said about wealthy people in the Bible. Um, if you want to find good things said about wealthy people, there are people who have said those things. But just there's not going to be a lot in here. Okay? You can blame it on context. It was just poor people who wrote this, so of course they're not going to like us. Or you can see maybe some theological theme running through it. Um, but he draws a direct connection between the wealth that they have and then the oppression of the needy, um, the stomping down of the downtrodden. And then he ends with this very dramatic imagery, right? These cows, who perhaps have treated others like animals, will themselves be treated like animals on the day of judgment. Uh, he says they'll be led away with fish hooks. Now, um, we know, historically, after the fact... Um, about 30 years after this is happening, this sermon's preached, an empire named Assyria comes and destroys Israel in fulfillment of these prophecies. And we know that the Assyrians had a certain way they liked to take and transport their captives. Um, and what they would do is they would pierce the mouth or the nose of each one of them and then run a rope through them individually and lead them one by one. It's like a train of slaves, right? I mean, kind of like fish on a fishing line, just hooked up. Um, and so, while Amos is using very intense imagery here, perhaps he's aware that this is an Assyrian practice for those who are um, taken by the uh, armies of Assyria. Uh, perhaps this is just a, a, a prediction of what is to come. But this very well might be the literal fate that's waiting for these people um, who have accumulated so much stuff and in so doing oppressed the poor and crushed the needy and caused um, great tumult and violence. They're storing up violence in their, in their strongholds, he says. Now, what can this speak to us as Christians on Lent? This is, I think, the hardest of the three sections here this morning. 
because we are so incredibly, unbelievably wealthy, historically and globally speaking, that I think it's, it's hard to even start the conversation about how we would even interact with a text like this. Um, because I don't think we can really grasp our minds around how wealthy we are, how much stuff we have. Again, when Amos talks about a summer and a winter home, this is, like, absurd to people, right? Jesus uses this as a big analogy himself, right? Like, people have storage rooms. How bad is God going to judge them? But, like, we have storage rooms now. The church has a storage room. <laughs> um, some of us have vacation houses. Um, I know I enjoy my winter and summer house. Yeah. Uh, it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I have two rooms in my apartment. I call one the summer home. <laughs> one the winter home. Um, the best we can do, I think, and the best I want to do, because I don't want you to be mad at me, is to suggest that God is deeply involved and cares about how people use their money. Um, and probably more than we would think. And the scriptures do make this direct connection that we would never make. That the very fact, the existence of having more than you need is itself an act of oppression against people who are in need. We don't make that connection. That wasn't written into the American dream. Um, we could maybe theorize and, and go the social route and say, well, you know, the systems that we built our wealth upon are systems that created uh, systemic poverty and generational um, neglect of certain people groups and certain nations and things of that nature. Or we could simply say what I think is the larger theme throughout Scripture um, is that money itself is not bad, wealth is not bad, um, the only time it becomes even a problem is if you have more than you need and someone else has less than they need. And then God starts to seem to care. Right? If, if you've got a lot of money and there's a guy outside your fence who's dying, that money now turns into evidence against you in God's eyes. Right? You killed that guy, God would say. There's blood on your hands. It's the imagery Micah uses. Not because you actually killed him, but because you just watched him die while you had all of this stuff. Um, this leads a lot of us to become paralyzed. Um, because we just have so much uh, that we think um, either that's not true, so we do an Israelite game, right? And we're like, that's just not true. I'm one of God's people. You can't be upset with how I spend my money. Um, or we you know, get caught up in romantic ideas of becoming a monk and selling everything and living naked in the streets until we get arrested and then maybe moving to Africa and, you know, doing something over there. Um, when the reality is most, not all of us, aren't going to do that. And so perhaps one thing we could do is just simply suggest that God does indeed care about our money and that God indeed desires people who have more than they need 
to look after people who have less than they need. Um, and the, the extent that we don't do that, or don't even attempt to do that, will be an extent that we have something against us. We have something that we've failed to do, that God expected us to do. Um, and so I, I just address progress, right? Maybe year-to-year progress. Um, look down and every January or whenever say, this last year, was I more faithful with my money? This last year, was I more faithful with my money? And maybe in 25 years, what you thought was an unimaginable lifestyle of generosity, right? You'll be living. And it won't seem like a big jump. It won't seem hard. It won't seem like you have, or you're living a slave life in America, right? Um, this small progress. Um, nothing makes you think about how you spend your money and where it goes more than getting married. And so Liz and I got married and you, know, you have to sit down and do your budget. And now all of a sudden, someone else sees my bank account. <laughs> so like three months ago, I could go get like a $150 haircut. A really nice men's hair salon downtown to give you a massage. Uh, and a beer or uh, grape juice um, <laughs> you know and it's this whole experience right but now <laughs> now she asked me what was this $150 for and I have to say there's a homeless man. <laughs> I asked him to cut my hair. Did a good job. Um, what if we? What would it be like if we imagined that God was on our bank account? Um, that the same way when you're in a new relationship that you have to like come to grips with the fact that you have to be accountable for every decision you make. No longer is it just affecting you. What if? What if? What if God is that intricately caring about how you use your money? That he might go, hey, what was that big bill for that just came through that cleared? Then you would have to go, oh, it was for this. And in your mind, be like, I don't know if that's acceptable or not. I don't know how you feel about that or not. It might change certain spending habits we have. Um... We do know that God cares deeply about the poor and the oppressed um, and that he wants um, those with any type of influence to, to, to do their best um, to care about them. And so, at the very least, this speaks to us about moving in that direction um, during the season of Lent. Um, perhaps one of the sins um, that we all find ourselves in through one way or another just because of where we live and how we've grown up is consumerism and materialism. Um, you know, the, the ladies did an exchange thing with clothes the other day. You know, it was every girl, like, I'm not like saying this, that was, this was their thing. Every girl has a handful of clothes that they bought that are still cute and they like, but they just don't wear anymore for whatever reason. Maybe they've, you know, it's a younger outfit or this or that. And so they were like, instead of us going shopping and spending money on new clothes, why don't we just bring all our relatively new clothes up to the church and just let people go home with new stuff? And they did that, right? I mean, that, that's a pretty creative way to 
kind of feed that habit of I want something new and pretty and shiny and yet do it in a way that doesn't freeze up your money and, and leave you unprepared to or unable to help the poor uh, or, or, or give where you're called to give. Um, now this last section, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do a people of Israel, declares the Lord God. This is our sarcastic call to worship. Prophets often made a call to worship and it follows this formula. This one is very sarcastic though. Come to the temple and bring all of your sins. I know you love sinning, and you have a lot of them, right? Come on, let's come sit in the temple. And it says, come, come to your offerings, your sacrifices every morning, and your tithes every three days. Um, this is over-religiosity. In the law, you were supposed to, the sacrifice he's referring to here, was something that you did once a year, not once a day. And the tithe, the land tithe that he's referring to here, is something you did once every three years, not once every three days. Um, whether he's exaggerating or not, the fact that, if he's not exaggerating, that people can afford to do this further testifies to just how wealthy they are. Um, perhaps he is exaggerating, though, just to get across the point that maybe they've replaced true obedience to God with a kind of showmanship, right? Um, a kind of false religion um, where they... Um, do extra things hoping that it will confuse God or that it will placate him for the deeper, more subtle sins they've got behind their backs. Um, and so they get up at church and, and make a big deal and they go home and they crush the needy and oppress the poor and accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. Um, but God has not been confused. Um, he then goes into the Lord God speaking through Amos a series of examples where he has tried to give them a warning shot. He's tried to wake them up. And they've refused to listen to him and come to him. So he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. This one sounds like a pretty nice deal. Okay? You're like, this is a bad thing? God's the great dentist. He gave everyone clean teeth. This is actually a metaphor for starving. Um, your teeth are clean because you have nothing to eat. Um, which uh, I don't think is recommended by dentist. I gave you cleanness of teeth and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. We'll hear this repeated five times. I withheld rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I'd send rain on one city, no rain on another city. One field would have rain. And on the field it didn't rain, it would wither. And two or three cities would wander to another city to try to drink water would not be satisfied. Yet, you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet, you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made, uh, I made a stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you 
that's when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. This once again establishes that the punishment, judgment coming for Israel, is not haste and arbitrary. We saw already this theme that God has been patiently waiting for his people to return. Here we find out he's also repeatedly given them kind of clear signals, trying to put something in their life to make them think twice about things. And after repeated attempts over and over and over and over again, they refuse to return to him. And it's this consistent refusal that then brings God's judgment. Therefore, in verse 12, thus I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He almost gives a little praise hymn here at the end, um, but it's actually a way of deepening and reinforcing this threat. And the big message given to Israel is prepare to meet your God. Which is not a statement you want to hear in a negative connotation. Prepare to meet your maker. It's not something that inspires happiness and confidence in us. God says, we'll meet face to face. I'll come down and we'll, we'll handle our problems. We'll solve everything. We'll figure it all out, man to man. And the point of this is for the lion to roar and people to fear. For them to return to him. As we'll see, they continue this pattern of not returning to the Lord. Now again, looking at what this might mean for us as Christians in the season of Lent, um, we maybe should proactively practice this turning back to the Lord. Um, I would rather turn back to him before having to meet him after repeated attempts for him to get me to turn back. This is what Lent's about, right? We're sitting back and we're taking it a little slower and we're taking inventory of our hearts. We're trying to identify, look out for those sins that are there. Maybe we didn't notice. Maybe we've just grown up comfortably next to everything else in our lives. We're trying to intentionally turn back to God for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we get distracted and we start to kind of walk or fade away. And this is a season where we get know we're going towards Him. We're going to turn towards Him. And while Amos uses this phrase, prepare to meet your God, as a, a warning about the judgment that's coming on Israel, I wonder if perhaps Christians reading it as they prepare for Easter might hear it in a different context. Whether their, their beliefs about God developed over the years through God's revelation changes what they might expect. You see, Christians believe that God actually did come face to face. But he didn't come to judge or condemn. In fact, he came to take the condemnation and the judgment. He absorbed it all inside of himself. Then, after flushing it down the toilet, he rose again. 
Maybe as Christians, the season of Lent is a time where we turn back to God in order to be prepared to meet our God when he rises from the dead. This is who God is, Christians believe. This is how God is most ultimately revealed. We're on our way to Easter. Just a couple weeks left. And maybe what we're doing in one sense is preparing to see, and to meet, and to be transformed by what God has done for us. And so we take time now to return to him, and to repent, to recommit ourselves to him, to root out the sins that we find in our lives, to listen to messages he maybe has been giving us for a while but have ignored. Um, And then I think if we do it, if we do it correctly and faithfully, we'll be more able celebrate, to worship, to enjoy Easter Sunday. Um, The more we turn back to God, the more we'll be able to recognize who he is and what he's doing when he rises and we sing and we celebrate. So Amos' message to the Israelites fell on deaf ears but through the Spirit, I pray that it wouldn't fall on the fears for us in this season of our community and our lives. That we would return to God and that we would prepare to, to see Him and the work and person of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for both positive and negative examples that we have in the scriptures, things to um, imitate and things to avoid doing. Pray, Father, that we would learn to um, learn how to learn from others' mistakes. We wouldn't have to repeat them and learn the hard way. Uh, Pray that we would be a people uh, who are constantly uh, in repentance and constantly turning to you and I pray that you continue to form us into a people who are able to worship you with extravagant joy and, and be filled with the most bold confident peace and sense of satisfaction and, and sense of purpose that we could ever imagine as we celebrate your resurrection and the new life that you brought into the world that you gave to us and that you want to give to others through us. I pray that you would not let us take our grace cheaply, um, that we would um, not take um, the great gift of Christ for granted, but instead live for him um, as we follow him each day. And it's in your son's name that we pray all these things. Amen.